guys, we come to our final study within our series in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Uh, man, during our time together, we have gone back to the beginning. Uh, from creation to the fall, to the first murder, to the crazy culture, to the flood, and now to the dispersion of nations. We're looking at a message entitled, say what? And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 11. And I don't know how you can write down on your notes that type, but you got to say, say what? So you, you got to somehow put that type of way to, it's not say what, it's say what? You guys, you guys, yeah, you got to put some quotations. Now listen, these 11 chapters have been awesome to go through. They are the foundation for everything we know and everything we believe and the rest of scriptures. If you take away these 11 chapters that we have studied, then the rest of the Bible has nothing to stand on. It simply has nothing to stand on. And, uh, and it's crazy how just 11 chapters can be this significant, but it's because of the amount of history that they cover. Uh, I told you this in the first couple uh, studies that we had, but I want to remind you, this is basically the breakdown of world history. And from Genesis 1 through 11, during our time together, we've covered about 2,000 years of world history. And that's quite a lot. It's one-third of world history is in Genesis 1 through 11. The other two-thirds are found in Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. That encompasses another about 2,000 years. And then finally, from the book of Matthew, all the way to the present time, what is known as the church age, covers another 2,000 years. And so I think one of the reasons that these chapters are so significant is for the, the mere volume of time that they encompass. Now, last week, we looked at the new world that Noah and his sons stepped off the ark into. We saw how God fulfilled his promise and gave them some unchanging instruction we ended our time last week, though, looking at the unfortunate ending to the story of Noah due to the abuse of alcohol and the disrespect of his son, Ham. Now, today, we come to two very important chapters that bring us to the origins of the current world as we know it. You see, looking at these two chapters, chapters 10 and chapter 11, we know the origin to all nations and all languages. All nations on the planet and all languages can be traced back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we are just excited to be here tonight because this is the gathering together of your people. It is good for us to go up to the house of the Lord. And God, as we're here uh, uh, um, in the midst of each other, uh, that the Holy Spirit is here to teach us. And so God, we pray as we come to your word and we come to these two final chapters, that everything that we have learned would just kind of come together. And Lord, what we know about the scriptures, the pieces would just begin to, to be put together that much more clearer, that we might see your will for our lives and we might see more clearly who you are. And so God, we pray that you go before us in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, though chapter 10 comes first in chronological order, it actually shows us the results of what takes place in chapter 11. And so you could place chapter 11 before 10, and it would read very similarly. Uh, the reason for this is chapter 10, look through chapter 10. It's very unique. It's a bunch of lists of names. Now, we've seen this in before, back in chapter 5. But chapter 10 is an overview of descendants of the three sons of Noah before the Tower of Babel, but that leads into the Tower of Babel and beyond. And so chapter 10 is an overview of descendants of the three sons of Noah. Chapter 11 is the detailed account of that dispersion, the reason why that these three sons and the people that came after them would have separated. We see that this kind of writing is not uncommon in the book of Genesis. Do you remember back 
when we started our series and Genesis 1 was this overview of all creation, all seven days. But then you go to chapter 2 and it jumps back to chapter, uh, to day 6 and focuses on day 6 of how God created man. And sometimes you can be confused because you say, wait, I thought God rested, but now we're back at day 6. It's because chapter 1 is this overview and then chapter 2 goes back to day six to talk about the details. It's kind of that, that focusing in. Well, today, let's first look at Genesis 10, which is known as the table of nations. The table of nations. Now, what is very unique about Genesis 10 is its relevance outside of the Bible, meaning that this is a document that is unmatched and unparalleled compared to any other document on the planet. It's remarkable in its historical accuracy, which is admitted even by critics of the Bible. So people that say, I don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, but Genesis 10, that's pretty legit. That's their perspective, that even people that would not be not even be believers in God, say Genesis 10 has some remarkable things contained in it. Now, for the sake of our time today, we can't dive into all the details of why, but essentially the reason that this document, Genesis 10, to you and I just looks like a bunch of names. This person had this person and then they went this place. This person had that person and then they went over here. Now to us, it looks like names. But it is from this chapter that you can trace back the origins of every nation in the world back to one of 70 people groups mentioned here in Genesis 10, okay? So in this chapter, you have the three sons, okay? Look there at verse one. It says, now this is a genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons. Now look at verse two. The sons of Japheth were, and it goes on. And then later on in the chapter, it'll say the sons of Ham were, and it goes on. And the sons of Shem were, and it goes on. And if you total it up, okay? People have done this in the past, um, and I've already done the studying for you. But if you were to go to count, there are 70 people mentioned, which tells us that out of these three sons, there were 70 people people groups that would have dispersed all throughout the world after the Tower of Babel. So we have 70 people groups, which means 70 languages. What you'll find in this chapter is the fact that out of these 70 people and out of these 70 languages comes all the languages on the earth. There are hundreds now, but at this point, After chapter 11, because of the Tower of Babel, there were 70. Prior to this, for that first 2,000 years of world history, there was only one language. Did you guys hear me? For one-third of the earth's existence, there was only one language on the planet. Now, scientists, even unbelieving scientists, believe that all nations have their origins in three distinct people. How interesting. Now, you and I know them as the sons of Noah. It's been scientifically confirmed that all nations worldwide and languages all came from a single origin in the Middle East, which is where the last 12, uh, 11 chapters have taken place. Now, I want you to notice something here. Look in your Bibles. This is going to take a little, a little looking on your part. Look at verse 5. The end of verse five, it says, according to his language, according to their families into their nations. Then jump down to verse 20. Jump down to verse 20. You guys see it? Verse 20 at the end of it, it also says, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. And then verse 31, the second to last verse of the chapter It says something very similar, according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to their nations. Now, what's going on here? This is at the end of all three sons' genealogies, and there are three divisions here, language, genetics, and ethnicity. 
What divided these 70 people groups were language. They all went into their own language, their own genetics, and their own ethnicity. Now, what happens here because of what we're about to go into, we're about to go into the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've never heard that story, but we're going to see how the people that came after the ark, Noah and his sons, about a hundred years later, the Tower of Babel happens, and then God has to disperse everyone throughout the world. This resulted in the splitting of the gene pool. The reason that we could look around this room, look around, and you see people with distinct characteristics different from you, different skin shade, different hair color, different eye color, and so on. The reason that is, is because of what we see here, what we see here in these couple chapters. Now, different cultures would have been formed, but all from one race. Everyone say one race. There is only, according to the Bible, one race. There are different ethnicities, different languages, different genetics, but there is one race, and it is the human race, the race of Adam, the race that was preserved through Noah, right? We saw it begin with Adam and Eve. All of you guys studied that with us, and then we've seen that then be preserved through Noah. There is only one race, and it is the human race. Acts 17, verse 26 Paul says this, and he, being God, has made from one blood, everyone say one blood. blood. That's the idea of, of, of one line, meaning one race, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. You see, the world wants to categorize everyone by these different races. But according to the Bible, according to what we find in Genesis 1 through 11, we are all related. There was a separation, what we're about to talk about at the Tower of Babel. But before that, and even after that, there is this relation. Now, there are some interesting things to note. I encourage you to go read through some of these names because there are some interesting things uh, that you could see in here. If you look at verses 9 through 11, look at chapter 10, you'll find a guy named Nimrod. Now, <laughs> I like that his name has become this like joke point because this guy was an evil, wicked man. We're told that he was a mighty hunter, not that he, he liked to wear camo, but the fact that he was a violent man and not only hunted men, uh, but he, he sought uh, a rebellion against God. Many people speculate that it was Nimrod, found in verses 9 through 11, uh, who would have taken over uh, uh, leading the charge of the Tower of Babel. Now, some believe, look at verse 28, you'll find a name. Uh, by the name, a guy by the name of Jobab. Do you guys see that? Verse 28, Jobab. Now, some believe that this might be who, uh, another, Nick, another name for the guy that we know in the Old Testament named Job. Job. Now, we don't know, but we know that Job would have lived around that same time as this guy named Jobab. Maybe it's the same guy, maybe it's not. And then notice the last verse, and we'll jump into the Tower of Babel. Look at the last verse, verse 32. You guys have your Bibles open? Look at verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Now remember, the, chapter 10 is an overview of what happens after the Tower of Babel. They're all dispersed. There's different people groups, 70 total, that would have gone into different areas throughout the earth. What we're about to jump into is how that took place. Now, the question must come, how long from the flood to the Tower of Babel? How long by the time that there were only eight people on the earth until these people begin to rebel against God once again. Well, many young earth creationists, which that's what you and I are, we believe in a young earth. We believe, according to the Bible, that the earth would be around 6,000 years old. Now, there are old earth creationists, meaning that they believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but he's used processes like evolution or different uh, processes uh, within, within creation, and it's rather millions of years old. Now, we believe what the Bible teaches, 
Uh, and so we lean that way. Now, for those who are young earth creationists, they come to the conclusion that it was about 100 years after the flood, that about 100 years after we find the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's read together, starting in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 9. The Bible here says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Well, it's, it's kind of a bizarre passage, at least to me. When I read it, I'm like, wait, what? They were making bricks. They made a tower. It was like a really tall tower, and then God was like, that's too tall. You guys are, now we're going to like confuse you and scatter you. Like, what's happening? Well, let's kind of break it down a little bit, all right? This, for me, even studying this, this was one that was kind of like, okay, I've always heard Tower Babel, like, you know, that's kind of where all the languages came from, uh, but it was uh, enjoyable for me today to kind of uh, read through this and see what, what's, what's taking place here. And so let's take it piece by piece. The first half, we see man's plans. We see what man does about a hundred years now post-flood. Uh, we don't know how many people were on the earth, but it seemed like a good collective of people. Now notice, look at verse one in your Bibles. The 11th chapter opens up with the fact that everyone on earth at this time was of one language and one speech. Translated literally, it would be one lip and one word. It means that they had the same vocabulary and the same phrases. So not only did they speak the same language, they had the same accents, they had the same phrases, they used the same kinds of words, very different from even what we understand today. Not only are languages different, but even there's certain dialects, right? Or there's certain areas that speak the same language, but it's really different. Have you guys ever gone down to the South or heard a Southern accent? You know, sometimes, man, you, you listen to someone who's from the South and you're like, what, what did you just say? <laughs> you, you said something about biscuits and beans and sweet tea, but I didn't really understand anything that just came out of your mouth. Now, I know you speak, spoke, Engli it spoke English. I can't speak English. <laughs> or maybe you've heard, uh, have you ever heard like a British accent? Not, not too bad. Usually you can understand. For whatever reason, I'm really bad with accents. So if you have an accent, I probably can't understand you very well. I, it's just my brain does like not compute. I, I don't know why. Um, I'll be on the phone and, you know, someone from like Amazon, I'm like, can you, can you just give me someone who, who I can understand? <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. But even like, uh, have you ever heard an Irish accent? English? I don't think that's English, whatever they're saying. Now, different than that, everyone at this time had the same accent, same sayings. They were of one lip of one word, all right? So no one was misunderstanding anyone. There was one language. Now, what was it? What was that one language? English. <laughs> English. More than likely, more than likely it was Hebrew. This is what I believe. Now, there's, it doesn't say. There's only speculation. But I think Hebrew is a very strong argument 
because, because listen, when you look at Genesis chapter one, all the way up to chapter nine, when there are names of places and people given, of course, you could say, well, it was a different language, but then it was, you know, then translated into Hebrew. It was originally talked about and then passed down. The problem with that is the people and places, those names have direct ties to the Hebrew language. Names in Hebrew mean something. And so the names that were given of places and people, whether it's the Garden of Eden, whether it's Eve, those are all Hebrew-connected words that have roots and ties within Hebrew. And so it would make the most sense that obviously that, that language survived. And so when God scattered the languages, there was one of those 70 people groups that still had the language of Hebrew. More than likely, that would have been uh, someone from the line of Shem that would have then p- been passed down to Abraham. But nonetheless, you see, God clearly told Noah's family to fill the earth. Remember we talked about that last week? It was the same command that was given to Adam. He was to be fruitful and multiply, and he was to fill the earth. Yet we see the people of earth, notice in verse two, we're told that the people of earth, they collectively move eastward. More than likely, uh, we're told that they go to, uh, not more than likely, we're told that they go to an area called Shinar. Do you guys see that in verse two? Shinar, these plains of Shinar. Uh, More than likely that this is modern day Iraq, which would have been ancient Babylon, okay? So the, the, the plains of Shinar from the Tower of Babel would have eventually become Babylon, and then would have been what we know uh, of, of uh, Assyria and, and modern-day Iraq. And so we're told that they settled down here collectively. Maybe these plains were, were fertile, maybe good for growing, uh, but we don't know. But nonetheless, they, rather than filling the earth, they congregate. They come together. Now, how quickly they have forgot about the entire flood that wiped everyone out. Yet we see that this was lost on them and they began to revert back to the ways of old. Now notice their plan. Look in your Bibles and in verses three and four, we find their plan. What what is their plan? They settle down. They're like, ooh, the plains of Shinar. This is an awesome place to live. Now we're told that they begin to have this corporate conversation. Look at verses three and four. That they begin to talk to one another. They say, come, come. Let us come, let us. They begin to talk together and they say, hey, let's build a city and a tower whose tops are in the heavens. And they then give the reason why. Look at verse four. We're given the purpose behind it. We're told that they wanted to make a name for themselves, a reputation. And they wanted to rebel against the commandment of God and stick together. Now it doesn't say, and they wanted to rebel against the commandment of God. It doesn't say that, but look at verse four. It says, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What did God want? For them to fill the whole earth. What did man want? They wanted to stay together. Let's let's stick together. Let's, Let's unify. Now listen, it wasn't the building that was the problem. God's not like, I don't like brick. The fact that you guys started making bricks, like that's just... I don't like that. No, he didn't have a problem with the building. He had a problem with the motivation. This would have been, the Tower of Babel would have been the beginning of all false religions. It's really a lot of speculation regarding what took place at the Tower of Babel. What what does this mean? The fact that whose top is in the heavens. Did they just want to make it really tall and see if they could like make it to God? No, I, I don't think that's it. In the Bible, we see places of idolatry labeled as places that are called high places. There's no doubt that this would have been uh, demonic in nature. This had the serpent of old written all over it. It's no longer about a tree in the Garden of Eden. It's about a tower. But the principle of disobedience is there. You see, Satan has different methods 
but his principles really never change. He wants to get mankind to disobey God, whether it's with the tree, whether it's with the tower, the principle of disobedience to the word of God is always his aim. That's always what he wants. And so we're told that they would do this to make a name for themselves. This is that same desire that Satan tempted Eve with. Remember when he said to Eve that this would give you the knowledge that God has to be like God? The pride of life, as the Bible calls it. They would do this to go against what God has said and make, a, make themselves in the place of God. You see, when you disobey God, you then put yourself in his place. You say, well, I think I know better. And so for them, they wanted to make a name. And this has always been the desire of the creation to be like the creator. It's, always, it's, it's from the beginning. From the first sin with Satan, remember, he wanted to be like the Most High, then with that same temptation, he gives it to Eve. You could be like God. And now here, even with the tower, that there's a possibility to make your own way. And it's worked its way into all of human history. Disobedience to God ultimately seeks to put ourself in the place of God. Does that make sense? And so that is man's plan. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the second half of the Tower of Babel, we see God's plans. And I love the contrast here. That yes, you see the plan of man. It's, hey, let's get together and let's just build a big tower. Let's begin to, to, to disobey God. And, and, and they, of course, that probably wasn't the promotion. They didn't say, enter here if you want to disobey God. No, it's, it's always much more crafty than that. See, the Tower of Babel is the birth of all false religions. And so look at verses five through nine. We're told, verse five, that God comes down and sees the city and the tower in which the sons of men had built. Now, it wasn't that God, excuse me, it wasn't that God didn't see it before. And he wasn't like, you know, just kind of hanging out in heaven. He's like, oh shoot, that's a really tall tower. No, that, that wasn't him. He knew about it, but it got to a place where God saw and God knew he needed to intervene. That if it wasn't for God intervening, then judgment would ultimately have to come again. And it just come a hundred years earlier. This type of language points to the greatness of God and the puniness of mankind. That as big of towers they made, it was God who had to come down and see what they were doing. And so we're told here that as the men spoke in the midst of one another, they said, come, let us build. We see the contrast. God says, come and let us see. And there's this conversation within the Trinity. Do you guys remember this back in chapter one, when God said, let us make man in our image. And there was that conversation of the Godhead. Well, we find that yet again, where God talks amongst himself. And notice this incredible statement. Look at your Bibles and look at what God says uh, to himself. The, the end of verse six, it says, this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Now, I remember the first time, <clears throat> I don't remember the first time. I remember one of the times reading this being like, why doesn't God want them to like do well? He says, man, if they come together, there's nothing that's going to be withheld from them. They're going to be able to do anything. You see, the purpose in which they were coming together was not good. It was evil. Their purpose wasn't going to be held from them, and their purpose was sin. God saw this seed of growing evil and knew what their end would be. He knew that nothing good would come from this supposed unity. You know, we live in a world that always cries for unity, right? Oh, we just need to come together. We just need to be unified. Many are pushing for a one world government. Many are pushing for us all to be one. We just got to come together and love one another. Yet you know that goes against the commandment of God? It sounds contrary. Unity sounds great. Yet when a bunch of sinners get united together to sin, it never turns out well. It's just sin then becomes even greater. This is the modern term 
globalism. All right, have you heard that term before? Maybe from your parents, maybe from the news, globalism. However, we see that one day this is exactly what's going to happen once more. In the end times, we're told that in the tribulation period, there is going to be a unity, but it's going to be a unity from hell ruled by the Antichrist himself, that everyone's going to come together. Oh, it's all good now. There's no wars. It's all peace. And then all evil will be unleashed and God's wrath will come. And so for now, though, uh, in our story, the implication is that they were going to slip right back into what God had just judged a hundred years earlier. That if God didn't do anything, let's say God said, looked at the city and said, that's not good. Eh, I'll, I'll see him in a couple hundred years and see if maybe they, they get out of it. If he had done that, then he would have had to judge them yet again. It wouldn't have been by water, but it could have been by something else. You see, what God did by dispersing the nations, by breaking up this party at the tower, was an act of mercy, not of judgment. God didn't want to have to bring judgment again. And so it was an act of mercy. He could have been said, he could have said, all right, that's it. This clearly isn't working. I sent a flood, saved eight people, gave them another shot at it, and it's not even been 100 years, and they're already doing this again. He said, let's just blow up the whole world and just start from scratch. Could God have done that? Would that have been easy? Would have been extremely easy, but he doesn't. Rather, God says, let them separate. Together, they're going to be worse for each other than if they are apart from one another, one another. And so God confused their language and scattered them abroad over all of the earth. And the city and the tower construction closed. And the plans of the wicked came to nothing. And there's an important principle here for us to learn and understand. The plans of the wicked always will come to nothing. There might be a moment of victory. There might be a moment of saying, man, they're just doing so well. They're getting their way. Yet every plan of evil will come to an end. Note down Proverbs 33, verse 10, which says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. See, it is an act of mercy when God steps in and thwarts a plan of evil. It's, it's that judgment would be delayed. You see, God is all about delaying judgment. Did you know that? Right now, God wants to delay judgment against our nation. And so that's why we're praying. We're praying that the right people would get into office. God is always about delaying, right? Think about the city of Nineveh with Jonah, which would be, did you know Nineveh would be the exact uh, uh, location of, of what, what we're talking about, the Tower of Babel, which would turn into Babylon later on, which before that uh, would be Nineveh. Same area. And remember that, God said, I'm going to bring judgment in 40 days. Did he bring judgment in 40 days? No, it was delayed. Eventually, Nineveh got God's judgment. But through the prophet Jonah, judgment was delayed. God is all about delaying judgment. He wants to give mercy. And sometimes his mercy is the fact that he brings man's plans to nothing. They, listen, think about it. They wanted to stay together, and what did God do? He scattered them. They wanted to make a, make a name for themselves, and he made them not even able to pronounce each other's name. God made their plans to nothing. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. I want you to turn there in your Bible. So put, put your little ribbon. This is good practice. Put your little ribbon in chapter 11. All right, if you don't have a ribbon, then put your finger or put a pen or something. And turn to Psalm chapter 2. If you don't know, the book of Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. You can always look to the table of contents to help you out. But Psalm chapter 2, we're going to be back in Genesis 11, and so don't lose your place there, or you can just find your way after. But this is good practice for us, Psalm chapter 2. Verse 
And as we read this, I want you to think about the story we just read, the Tower of Babel, how man had his plans and God easily just kind of said, nope, that's not going to happen. Because if you keep going down that road, I'm going to have to bring judgment again, and I'm just going to have to kill everyone again. And so this is just not going to go well. Because God is just, God is good. And God's wrath only can be taken so far until his justice must be served. But notice this, Psalm 2. You guys there? If you're there, say word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Sound familiar? Against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God in heaven will laugh at their plans. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. See, this is a picture for us of man's desire for independence from God. All right, listen up. Everyone wants to be independent from God. That, that's what's in our spirit. That's what's in our flesh. That's this desire that because of the fall, because of what we read back in Genesis chapter three, people want independence from God. And so they try to cast him off. You see, these nine verses mirror the attempt of humanity in the garden to achieve power independently of God, right? Think about Eve and the temptation. She saw an opportunity to be independent from God and she took it. And she took it. You know, it's been often pointed out that Pentecost is a reversal of Babel, okay? You guys ever heard of the day of Pentecost? So that's the church's birthday. Did you know the church of Jesus has a birthday? It's Acts chapter two. And in Acts chapter two, you find this incredible story about the Holy Spirit being poured out on the disciples. You guys remember the story about Jesus ascending to heaven? That was a pretty crazy, crazy thing. I mean, Jesus died. He rose again. He was with them for a little bit. And then he's like, bye, I'm going to heaven. But he said, hey, wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they wait in Jerusalem and we're told that they're waiting, being obedient to God. God sends the Holy Spirit and we're told that men begin to speak in tongues and that there were other Jews in the area and people from other countries. And they started hearing their language being spoken. But they said, these people don't know our languages, yet their languages were being spoken. It was a move from God. It was a spiritual unity among God's people that just, it was a reversal because at Babel, everyone was confused. God changed their languages into 70, approximately 70 different languages, and they couldn't understand each other. But here, People that didn't even speak other languages were speaking and people were hearing. You know, this is a picture of what it's going to be like in heaven. You know, in heaven, it's going to be interesting because we're all going to be able to communicate with one another. There's going to be a common language that, again, possibility is Hebrew, but we don't know for sure. Wouldn't that be cool if we get to heaven and we speak like perfect Hebrew? It'd be really cool. But, but listen, we're also going to be able to know our native tongue. The Bible gives a picture of heaven that every tribe, every nation, and every tongue will worship God. So people will still have their languages, but there's going to be one language that we're going to be able to communicate with one another. And think about it. God wants unity, but not now. Jesus said that he came to bring a sword, division. People need to be divided. If we all get together, our sin is going to get the best of us. But there's going to be a day where God removes our sin from us. And that's an eternity. And so then we'll be together once again. Yeah, we have time. I want you guys to turn again into your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. Now, this will be a challenge for you guys uh, to find the book of Zephaniah. But remember, you always have the cheat, cheat sheet which is the table of contents, but Zephaniah, all right? 
It is a book in the Bible. And I want you to go to chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Zephaniah. Maybe some of you have never turned in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Then tonight will be good practice for you. Now listen, as you turn there quietly, Zephaniah, the reason that we're looking at this random minor prophet is because he was a prophet who spoke about a future time when God will restore the people a pure language. God's original intention was that all humans would speak the same language. I don't know. I always trip out. Just hearing other, just hearing other languages trip you out. Like you can just hear them talk to each other. And you're like, you really understanding them? They sound crazy to me. It's a trip for sure, but it's not God's intention. If Adam and Eve never sinned and no one ever sinned, there would only be one language. That's why for the first 10 chapters of the Bible, there was only one language. For the first 2,000 years of human history, one language. There's going to come a day where we still have those languages, but God restores what he calls the pure language. All right? Look at Zephaniah chapter 3. Look at verse 9 in your Bibles. He says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they, call all, uh, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you trespass against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. He speaks of this pure language that we're going to be able to come together and worship God uh, all together. We long for the day when we can all dwell in unity, yet without the sinful desire to be independent from God. All right? So that is the Table of Nations. That is the Tower of Babel. But let's let's shift the focus a little bit as we end to the end of Genesis 11. And as we as we shift our focus, we shift our focus because the, the, the book of Genesis shifts the focus. If you look at those past verse nine at the end of, of, of what's happening here, you're going to see more names. Now, at first you might glance at it and go, oh my gosh, more names, more genealogies. But it's important because at the end of Genesis 11, there's a transition There's a prelude to the story of Abraham as the genealogy of Shem is further laid out. Okay, it would be through the son of Noah, through the line of Shem, that the Messiah would come, that promised seed. Do you remember back in Genesis 3? When though God gave the curse to the woman, he also said and promised that there would be one that comes from you that would crush the head of the serpent. Right, that was the, the first gospel ever mentioned. Well, think about it. By this time, man has been tested three times. In the garden, failed. In the flood, everyone but eight people failed. And now in Babel, failed every single time. And so the end of chapter 11 is kind of like, it can be depressing. It's like, wow, there's just no hope here. And so the universal focus of the book of Genesis now begins to shift, right? For these first 10 chapters, we've pretty much, though there's been Adam and though there's been a focus on Noah, pretty much every study we've been talking about mankind universally, but now it shifts to a single family and a single land. See, God would continue this process of his plan of redemption through a single man who would do his will, and that's the man Abraham. And so Genesis 11 leaves this rather sad mark on human history. It's been 2,000 years of mostly disaster because of sin, and so will things ever change? And so God concludes this important genealogy with the solution that would be provided. And so listen, all these nations now, they go to every part of the earth 
But God would begin to form a nation that would become his channel of blessing. God wasn't done with the human race, but begins to prepare you and I as the reader for the next work within history. And so listen, starting from chapter 12, which we're not going to get into because our series has only been these 11 chapters, he starts with Abraham and focuses on this single nation until, of course, we eventually get to Genesis. Now, look in your Bibles, look at Genesis 11, verse 26, verse 26. This is the first mentioned of this man named Abram, who, of course, his name would later be changed to Abraham. If you're taking notes, Abraham is mentioned 312 times in the Bible. Abraham alone, 312 times. He is arguably the most famous man of the Old Testament and certainly one of the most influential men in history. And so think about it. The book of Genesis covers more than 2,000 years and more than 20 generations, yet we just spent 11 chapters on that. But from chapter 12 until the end of the book, it's all about Abraham and his family. And so it's kind of interesting. There's something special about this man, Abraham. Abraham was recognized by God as his friend. Note down Isaiah 41, verse 8. I love this. Later on, it would be said, God would say this, but you, Israel, are my servant, speaking to the nation, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham. And what does he say about Abraham? My friend. God says about Abraham that he is his friend. So what was so unique about this man named Abraham? Was he perfect? Have you ever read the story of Abraham? Was he perfect? No, he lied about his own wife being his sister. It's crazy. He's not perfect. But listen, twice. He did it twice. Listen, he, he was not perfect, but he sought to pursue what God said to do. And I love the fact that God wants to call you and I friends if we do what he says to do. John 15, 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made, been made known to you. No doubt in the book of Genesis, man like Adam stands out. He walked with God. Enoch walked with God and then was not. Noah found grace in the eyes of God because he walked with God. And now Abraham will be focused on, after all this craziness of the flood, of the Babel, of the, of the tree, of the Eden, now it singles in on this man named Abraham. And it was all because there's something about this man who had a loyalty to God that God would be able to say, he is my friend. And for you and, for you and I, as we seek to do what God says. God would call us. We give us this very unique place. Yes, he's our father. Yes, he's our Lord. But Jesus would say to us, who seek to do his will, you are my friend. Now, I'd encourage you guys. We are done in the book of Genesis for now. We will be uh, beginning a new series in, in short time. We'll have our fellowship feast next week. But maybe for you, you don't know what to be reading in the Bible right now. You have that struggle of waking up, wanting to read, but you're like, ah, I don't know what to read. So you, you play Bible roulette. Remember, I've told you guys a thousand times, never play Bible roulette. You know what that is? And you wake up in the morning, you choose a certain passage. I'll read this page. And then the next morning you say, ah, let's go again. I'll read this page. Don't do that. Pick a book and read through it. And so now you have a great foundation of Genesis 1 through 11. And so you want a place to start reading in your Bible? Where do you think you should start tomorrow? Genesis chapter 12. Read about Abraham. Read about what God continues to do. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful tonight that you have not just instructed us to trust you, 
but you have given us more than enough reason why we should. You haven't not asked us to check our brains out at the door and just believe, just have blind faith. You have said, come, let us reason together. And we are so grateful for these 11 chapters that they give us explanations. Do we know all the answers? No. One day we look forward to asking you many questions, but you have given us everything we need that pertains to life and that of godliness. And so God, we thank you for these 11 chapters that give us clarity. We thank you that they do not contradict what scientists discover in this world that you created, they confirm it. And we thank you that you have not given up on us. You've not thrown in the towel. It's not even been a desire of yours. You have delayed judgment. You have acted in mercy for you are rich in mercy and grace. You have a great love for us. You have been faithful when we have been faithless. And God, we love looking at this account, this historical account of, of the beginning because it helps us to trust you that much more in the now. If you've been good in the past and you'll be good today and you'll be good in the future. And so God, we just worship you today and thank you for creating us in the image of God. And we just want to get back to that image. We know that sin has messed us up. We know that we've made decisions and choices that we can't take back, but we can move forward. And we pray that you'd help us to live in your will, in your plan, because we know it's perfect. We know, God, that your way is the best way. And we just worship you with all of our heart now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.